Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Mile End service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Hey, thanks everyone for being here today. I know, you know, the sun's out, the Women's World Cup is on, and you came anyway, so I really appreciate that. I just want to say I have no judgment for people who are checking their phones, because um, if I wasn't preaching, I'd be checking mine too. Um, So... Go ahead, get that score every once in a while. I'll be very curious to see what you do if we actually score during the service. Will you shout? Will you call yourself out in front of all of us that you've been watching this? Well, I'm really uh, happy for the opportunity um, to be with you guys this morning and also a little nervous. But um, yeah, some of you guys know that I uh, work for this Christian charity uh, called Agape UK. And I've been working for them for quite some time. I've been in the UK for seven years but I also worked in Florence, Italy for 10. And when I was in Italy, one of the faculties that we worked in, we decided to do a survey. Uh, We called it 100 Students, and the idea was that we did video interviews of 100 students in the philosophy and letters faculty, because they're the ones who like to share their opinions the most. Um, And we asked them some different questions about spiritual things, and one of the questions we asked them was, who do you think Jesus is? So out of 100 students, one student said, the son of God. But do you know what the number one answer to the question, who was Jesus, was? The number one answer was, he was the first revolutionary. Now, if you've ever been to Tuscany, which Florence is the capital, I want to put aside some Tuscany myths. Tuscany is a region. Florence is the capital. You don't go out of Florence and go into Tuscany. You're in Tuscany when you're in Florence, just to clear that up. Um, So if you've been in any of the cities near Florence, Pisa, Lucca, Tuscany, um, you've you've been there. So one thing you may not have noticed while eating all the good food and all the good wine that we offer is that um, Tuscany um, has been quite a rebellious area of the country. It was always very anti-church. In fact, um, there used to be a papal tax on salt. And the Florentines and the Tuscans, of course, refused to pay that. That's why their bread has no salt. If you've ever wondered why the salty list bread in Florence exists, that's why. Uh, But Florence and then also Emilia-Romagna, which is where Bologna is, are considered communist regions of Italy. So Jesus the revolutionary makes sense, right? That's their whole vibe. Uh, That's who they want him to be. And I think when those students answered that question, two things um, were highlighted. One... It's what they believe that Jesus was, but again, it's also who they want him to be. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's a really important question for us to answer today, whether we're Christians already, maybe you're just exploring faith. Who is Jesus? Why does that actually matter? And this morning, we're going to look together at a story in Luke where Jesus actually asks his followers this question, who do you say that I am? And we're going to see what they had come to believe, but also how that shaped their lives. So if, uh, if you want to, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 9. This is starting in verse 18. And it says this. Once when Jesus was praying in private, and the disciple, oh, praying in private. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him. There you go. He asked them, who do you, the crowd say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. 
So a little bit of context. We've been in the book of Luke as a church for a while now, but again, I think it's good to remember what, what is the story that Luke is trying to tell. In Luke's story of Jesus, he is placing special emphasis in the story on who Jesus is, who he is. I think that Luke does this because when we have a full understanding of who Jesus is, that helps us to fully understand then what the Christian life is. Because you can't understand one without the other. The identity of Jesus is important. It's actually crucial to the story of who he is. Luke also wants, I think, to communicate that Jesus was just a man among men. He's a real, actually a real person. And at the time when Luke was writing this, you may remember that he's writing this to a primarily Greek audience. Well, the Greeks, they thought of the gods as superhuman, right? They weren't real people. But Jesus is a real person. He is a human being, but he's also fully God. He's a real person that people can see and experience. So overall, what Luke is wanting to do, what he's trying to do, um, is to explain who Jesus is. Who is this man unlike any other man we have ever known? And we see that Jesus then poses two questions to the disciples. So first, he poses a very general question. Who are people saying that I am? Early in chapter 9, in the same verses, you see that Jesus took his disciples out. They're doing ministry, uh, the same ministry that they've been doing with Jesus. He now sends them out to do on his own. And it, it's going amazing. People are being healed. Um, and it says the good news of Jesus is being spread everywhere. The news of what he has done, everyone is hearing about it. They didn't need that app formerly known as Twitter. In those days, they had like word of mouth, you know, good old gossip. Everybody likes a bit of that. Um, so everyone is talking about who, who Jesus is, and they have a lot of ideas of who they think he is. So back in verse 7, um, it says that some people thought he might be John the Baptist, who, by the way, if you remember, was beheaded. So I think the chances are low, but people still think that might be who he is. Others said maybe he's one of the prophets of long ago, and they've come back to life, which um, in the story of Israel, obviously, they had a lot of prophets who did some really amazing things. So Good assumption. Others said specifically that he was Elijah, which I think is really interesting because when you go back and read the story of Elijah, he did some things similar to what Jesus is doing. In fact, one of them actually involved a miracle with food um, that he did for a widow and her young son who are about to die. So it kind of makes sense that they think, oh, maybe it's Elijah. They are trying to figure out who Jesus is. Going back even a little further in chapter 7, there's a story where at the end they say, who is this? Who is this person that he even forgives sins? So what seems evident, I think, to people as they encounter and experience Jesus is that he is really a man unlike any other man they've ever known, right? They know the town where he grew up, so he's just a regular guy, but yet he can forgive sin. He can calm storms. He can feed thousands with a few fish and loaves. He teaches with the authority of the greatest teachers of his time and yet has never had any training under a rabbi. He prefers the company of the lowly and the outcast. He has women in his entourage, which was very countercultural. He extends his healing touch to all he encounters. No wonder they think a mighty prophet has come back among them. And yet he is so much more than they ever dared to hope. Um, so, and Jesus now, he's asked them this question, who do people say that I am? So he has a clear idea of who that they say. 
But then in classic Jesus style, he doesn't just leave it on the, you know, everybody else. He asks a very personal and vulnerable question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? These men at this point have spent about two years with Jesus. They followed him around. They have had a front row seat to everything that he's been doing. So you hope that they would recognize who he is at this point. And they don't disappoint. You know, they say, you're the Messiah. But it's obvious, even after this point, they still have a little doubt and some questions, which is, I think, just normal for all of us. But again, Peter, when Jesus asked this question, is the representative of this group. He speaks up, and he says this, you are God's Messiah. In the parallel story to this that we find in Matthew, when Peter says this, Jesus responds back, and he says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, which was Jesus' little, I don't know, pet name's the right word, but whenever Jesus was trying to, like, get Peter's attention to say, this is really important, pay attention, he often called him Simon Peter. Um, and he says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This didn't come from the wisdom of man, but my Father in heaven has showed you this. Peter knows who Jesus is in the same way that we also come to know him, by God opening our eyes to the reality of all that he is. You are the Messiah. Who is the Messiah, right? I think, um, I wish I could, you know, go back in a time machine to the time of Jesus, not to junior high, not to middle school, not to secondary school. That was awful. I'd like to be in the time of Jesus. Um, because this word Messiah at that time had incredible meaning. It was pregnant with meaning. And I feel like we miss a little bit of the impact today that it would have had then. We translate that word Christ, just in case you're wondering, where does the Messiah come from? But when Peter says this, Jesus, you are the Messiah, he's saying you are the Savior that was promised to us in the Old Testament. And I know some of you find the Old Testament quite boring. I've talked to a few of you about that. Um, I'm a big nerd. I love the Old Testament. I think it's amazing. Um, I think God does some crazy stuff, but as my, I took up one Old Testament class. Don't ask me about it because I'll just go really nerdy on you, but um, yeah, I had a professor and he was, every day he made us say this, in the Old Testament, God uses physical phenomenon to teach spiritual truth. Name changes, things that are going on, that's where God's story is being told, so pay attention. I digress and get off my soapbox. Um, but what Peter is saying is, you're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You are the one that we have been longing for. All those seemingly random stories that we read in the Old Testament, those hard and very confusing, I'll admit, texts at time, are all telling the same story of the God of Israel, who is the God of the universe, and his desire and plan for being in relationship with those who bear his image which is us. This is the deliverer, the one who's going to restore all that has been broken, people, creation, relationships. This is what the story has been whispering to us all along. And I can't even imagine like the joy that they, you know, would Jesus, well, he basically, Peter says, you're the Messiah. And he says, don't tell anyone, which is really interesting. But I just can't imagine the joy they must have felt knowing he is the one we have been waiting for. And I don't know if you've ever... Um, any of you guys watch The Chosen or have seen any of this TV series about the life of Jesus? Um, highly recommend it. Very powerful. But one of the things that I love when I'm watching it are the stories where people begin to understand who Jesus is. And I remember watching the first season and um, 
they're telling the story of when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, um, which we find in John 3. And it's, it's like this light bulb. You can see this light bulb coming on in his mind as he's starting to understand, but you know he's not going to fully get it then. I just started crying. I just started crying. I was like, this is amazing. So, I mean, it's just, it's a really awesome moment for them. But he is the Messiah in a way they hadn't actually expected it. The popular idea of Jesus at this time was that he was going to bring a revolution. He's the, he's the Messiah that the, the Italian students wanted him to be. That's kind of their conception of it. They thought that Messiah was going to come and kind of violently overthrow the conquering forces in Israel and reestablish Israel's kingdom in its full strength. But Luke is very careful in his telling of the story of Jesus to tell it as the story of Israel and the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. And this is, the, and this is what God had always intended to do. That is, that God is coming to dwell with his people in the person of Jesus and in the power of his spirit. <clears throat> this is the royal agenda. This is the, um, the messianic agenda of God putting things right in God's world. If you want to know God, Luke is saying, look closely at who Jesus is. And I find it really interesting that the beginning Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm the Messiah. That's not how the story starts. There were a number of reasons for that. People would have assumed many things about him, but he kind of, he, he hides that for a while. He doesn't want people to know. And like I said in this passage, he actually tells them not to tell anybody. And that's because his messiahship was very different, again, than what they expected. He is bringing a revolution, actually, but it's not one that's going to overthrow rulers and authorities. It's one that's going to actually transform and restore people and families, cultures, societies, and to fill the whole earth. I bought this book a couple months ago that I've been reading called um, Reading the Gospel Through Palest or Reading the Gospel of John Through Palestinian Eyes. And uh, I've, I found this quote really wonderful. It said, put differently, the invisible God became visible. The Holy One who could not be touched became one of us. The God of the whole universe became a citizen of an insignificant town, thus demonstrating his humility. This is the story that has been going on this whole time. This is the story. And this moment is the culmination um, of the ages in some sense. I want to read uh, just a short excerpt from you uh, from a Bible that I highly recommend that you get called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's for kids, but it's awesome. Uh, the subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name, and it's very powerful. If you want to understand how the story of Jesus goes through all the scripture, I highly recommend this as, as really good reading, not just for children. And uh, this is starting in Genesis, but it says this, God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day, he would get his children back. One day, he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day, he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I am coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Who is Jesus and his identity? 
His identity is a primary theme in Luke's story, and maybe nowhere more clearly than in this passage. The identity of Jesus is very important here and for the rest of the story. And it's not just important, again, because Luke is, is wanting the disciples to click that and have a clear understanding of who he is. It's important because from this time forward until now, Jesus is fulfilling all that God had promised to do. And Luke is trying to set all of us up. He wanted to set even us up to live out what is our true center, which is Jesus. Because Christian faith is about reorienting our entire life, not around a set of rules or behavior, but around a person, around the center, and that center needs to hold. Um, when I was a young girl, uh, my dad kind of, I didn't realize this till later, but he kind of put me through a little bit of a training school. Um, and uh, when I was probably like three, four years old, he, he taught me this phrase, black is beautiful. And we would say it to each other all the time, even like my whole life. Like he'd just come up and randomly say, Nicole, what do we say? And I'd be like, black is beautiful. That's our thing. Um, and I, yeah, I, I never really thought about maybe why sometimes my dad uh, was, was going through the school with me. But upon reflection, I think the thing I began to understand is that many of you know me. So, you know, I also like to say I'm beautifully black and wonderfully white. I'm mixed. Um, but my dad recognized that in the town that I grew up, which was about 97% white, um, that even though I had a white mom, the world around me would primarily see me as one thing, and that was black. And my dad wanted me to be proud of that. He wanted me to be able to say to people who might not feel the same way I did, yeah, I'm black, what's your problem? Um, he wanted me to know that being black was beautiful and it was good even when other people didn't think that. He wanted me to have a center for my life, and he wanted that center to hold. And I really appreciate that now, um, the things that my dad taught me. And I also really began to appreciate it as I, when I became a Christian. It helped me understand why getting the identity of Jesus and subsequently my identity as his followers, why that really mattered, and that was so grounding. So now we turn to the question um, that Jesus, I think, well, actually, let me go back a second. I think that these two questions highlight um, the question that we all then need to ask ourselves, which is, why do we need certainty around who Jesus is? Why is that important, not just to the story, but for us to be able, yeah, why is that not important just for the story, but for all of our lives? Here's a couple of thoughts. I think for us, like the disciples, to have a clear understanding of who Jesus is, it'll allow us to just to be able to live free. We can live freely before God because we remember that ours is a story of relationship by grace, where despite being deeply flawed, we know that we're also more loved than we could ever begin to imagine. Our identity is beloved people, not, not conditionally loved people. I think the clearer our picture of who Jesus is, the greater our ability also to be instruments or agents of his good work on the earth. Jesus didn't just live, die, then rise from the dead so I could just kind of float off in this blissful, like, heavenly, you know. He didn't die and then take me to the other side. He actually had a purpose for my life. He has a purpose for your life, a plan and an intention. But that purpose is tied clearly to the person of Jesus. And if you go on to read part two... Um, 
of Luke's story of the life of Jesus, which is in the book of Acts, you see the disciples kind of working this out. They're working out this purpose and plan that God has for him. They're being used as instruments and agents um, of his reconciliation as they tell people the good news. They cracked on, and they got on with the great plan that God had for their lives in this world. We live, uh, could be argued, uh, probably in a very significant, let's say, age of identity, where identity touches on everything from race to gender, politics, sports, nationality. And as Christians, we're thinking about these things both personally, but also probably in conversation with friends and family. The disciples had the same thing that they had to think about as well. As first century Jews, they had a very strong identity and sense of who they are. But they were Jews who were also then following Jesus, which wasn't it will, yeah, which wasn't exactly the most popular thing. So they had to wrestle through identity as well. But one of the things that I love about Luke is in this story, as he's focusing on Jesus' identity, he's using that to draw us to the place that matters most. Not who am I, but who is he? Which is fundamental to all of our life as Christians, and it saturates all of our lives. The clearer, I think, our picture of Jesus is that everything else falls into submission to that. If I'm not clear on who Jesus is, honestly, just as a pretty flawed person, uh, you know, those of you who know me know my flaws. You've, you've seen my anger and my weakness, so not a big surprise there. But if I'm, uh, if I'm not clear on who Jesus is, then I stand a great chance of making something else the center of my life besides him. I think... We, we also run the great chance of making Jesus who I would like him to be. Um, he'll act how I want him to act, think how I want him to think, like who I want him to like, think how I think he needs to. And I'll be honest, this has been a real struggle for me um, the past eight years, especially when I think about the context, um, and now I will show my most Americanness. Uh, broadly speaking of the evangelical church in the U.S. and a lot of conversations going on that I've been involved with or I'm reading about around politics, around justice, and our theology about those things. And what I'm finding that I'm really struggling with as I try to answer these questions and conversations with good friends of mine who I know deeply love Jesus, but I don't think we agree anymore on certain things, is how do I engage these stories in a way that I take them to Jesus, but Jesus just doesn't give me the answer that I want to hear? Um, yeah, I, I found that Jesus agrees with me a lot recently. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I'll be honest. Um, yeah, but in my mind, I'm kind of like, you obviously would be so frustrated by them, right, Jesus? You, you would think they're ding-dongs like I do, right? That's, that's kind of how you see it. And though there are probably some things I'm seeing the way Jesus is, it's not all things. And I have to be honest about that. Um, it's really hard, though. It's very, I think, uncomfortable and humbling to realize that there are things that I may actually be wrong about that I need to think about a lot. Um, it's, not, it's not a lot of fun. And I have to be asking myself constantly, does the Jesus I worship fit into my nice and tidy box of my expectation of him and how I see the world? And if so, is he in danger of becoming a Jesus of my own making and not the Messiah that Peter recognized? My friend Matt said this week, and I thought it was really awesome, of what value is a God of our own making? 
And I bet if I went around and asked you guys, who do you think Jesus is, you'd probably give me a really good answer to that. But then if I asked you kind of what you want him to be, it's possible that those things might come into conflict. And that's not judgment on anyone in this room. That's just a normal part of the human experience. And I think a normal part of the moment that we're living kind of in culturally right now. But he's not a God of our own making. He's the Messiah. And we need to let Jesus inform who Jesus is. Not popular opinion. And it's really easy, I think, to have our view of him shaped by popular opinion. But Jesus needs to inform who Jesus is. Uh, when I was preparing for this, I, I came across uh, an article um, from uh, Christianity Today, which is a U.S. Uh, publication. And uh, the editor, a man named Russell Moore, who I feel like is a really clear, thoughtful voice right now um, in the moment we're living in, he shared this story. Um, and the title of his interview is called Why Christianity in the U.S. is in Crisis. Um, I'm just going to say, I don't think this is a particular American thing, like this is our own cool thing, everyone else is immune. Um, but I think it's really informative and interesting. He said he had, he had gone around talking to a number of pastors, and he heard kind of the same story from all of them. They had been teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, specifically when Jesus talks about turning the other um, cheek. And after they had preached, several people had come up to these pastors and had asked them, hey, where'd you get all those liberal talking points from? And uh, what was alarming was that when these leaders said, I am actually just quoting Jesus, the people didn't say, oh, I, I didn't realize that. They said, yeah, well, that doesn't work anymore. That's really weak. And Russell Moore said, when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive, then we're in a crisis. Is he the Jesus of our own making, or is he the Messiah of God? I think having a clear picture of who Jesus is is meant to shape all of who we are. It's meant to shape our entire life and how we behave. Um, I'm going to read really quick verses 23 through 27, which we didn't look at, but it's part of the story. Um, so after Peter um, says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, um, it says, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Yeah, having a clear picture of who Jesus is is meant to inform our lives, is meant to shape our very lives. And in this, these verses, Jesus is explaining to his disciples what a life of discipleship actually looks like to him. He's presenting it as a life, obviously, of sacrifice, which demands taking up a cross and not a sword. Again, that was the popular opinion. They wanted to take up a rebellion. Um, and Jesus was starting a rebellion. He was starting a revolution. But this revolution 
was a revolution of people that called for men and women to fully surrender their whole life to Jesus, not grabbing for power and position, but to follow his example of laying down all things. It was a revolution where loss actually meant gain. It was a countercultural way to live then. It is a countercultural way to live now, but it is the way in which we are called to follow Jesus and to figure out how does this look in my daily life, in my workplace, with my friends, with my family, at my university. Jesus the Messiah translates itself into a community of men and women that are being transformed by the Spirit. They're being formed in obedience to be utterly dependent on God, to live in dependence on His Spirit, and who hold Jesus as the uncompromising center of their identity and faith. Uh, maybe I could have the band come back up. Luke's telling of the story of Jesus, especially with his emphasis on the identity of Jesus, you are the Messiah, is the pinnacle of the story. It's the pinnacle of history, actually. This is a Jesus-centered story. It's not a me-centered story. And so his identity is central to all of it. It is the centerpiece. It is the crowning glory of all of the word of God, of all of the Bible, because Jesus is not just the center of history. He's ultimately the center of our very lives. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that we could open up your word this morning and look to you. And Lord, I, I want to be the first to admit, I love to talk about you, but I know it is not always easy to follow you. You're wonderful and you are awesome, but Lord, it is hard at times. So Lord, I pray more than anything this morning through your word that you would encourage us to set and fix our eyes on you, that we would believe the truth of who we are, that that would shape um, everything about us, Lord, that we would draw confidence um, in, in you, Jesus, as the Messiah. So thank you so much, Lord. Do what you wanted to do this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>